Welcome to StellarCast, the Stellar Recruitment Podcast. Let's go on an inspiring journey. By listening, learning, and taking key actions from our own recruitment experts, as well as industry leaders and inspirational individuals. By unlocking our own transformative change, we can all become the best versions of ourselves. Hey guys, uh, we're really lucky to have Toby Jenkins and Jonah Oliver here today from the North Framework. They're here to talk to us about the importance of values and those values obviously transcend and show up and have great impact in all aspects of life, whether it's personally, family, or in a corporate context. So I guess the things that we talk about can be applied across all those different domains. So I've got great confidence that you'll enjoy the conversation. Thanks again for taking the time to tune in. Guys, well, thanks for joining us here today. Good to have you both here in the room. Uh, Really looking forward to some of the stuff where we're going to talk about. So today we've got um, Toby Jenkins and we've got uh, Jonah Oliver uh, here joining us. So a lot of you guys will know both gents, but um, we might just sort of kick off with, I guess, a bit of a, an opening question for you, Toby, um, and try and understand how a, a former Olympian and now entrepreneur and a high-performance uh, psychologist come together to create uh, North Framework and, and what's the purpose of the company? Yeah, no, thanks, Sean, and you know, thanks for having us along, mate. Um, Look, I guess, you know, personally, if we wind it back a couple of decades, performance <laughs> is something I've always loved, right? Particularly, I guess, early on in the athlete journey, playing water polo. Yeah, like the real question was how good could I be? You know, whether that was strength, conditioning, you know, psychology, nutrition, tactics, strategy, whatever, um, skills. So there was so much that went into that and uh, and I loved it, loved the journey. Pretty cool to be able to, you know, see your dream come to life as well. And then on the sort of almost the trip back home, I was sort of thinking, what am I going to do next? <laughs> um, had the classic sort of two weeks of contentment. Um, and Jonah and I talk about this quite a bit, right? Um, yeah, two weeks of sort of satisfaction, I reckon. Probably relief primarily. But And then what, what was going to come next? And that was when I started you know, a new business, um, Blue Wire Media, digital marketing business. And and really, I guess the piece that really captured my attention there was, you know, how good could this team be? So ran down the rabbit hole of all sorts of, you know, performance frameworks, Vern Harnish and stuff. Mm-hmm. I know you're familiar mm-hmm. with, um, you know, Jim Collins, Patrick Lencioni. I'm sure we'll touch on those guys a little bit later on. Yeah, everything from sort of performance and, you know, performance criteria all the way through to hiring, onboarding, the full employee experience, um, the daily habits to weekly, monthly routines, all that sort of stuff. And I loved that. That went through a number of iterations. Business model changed, um, which meant that really the team was distributed around the world and you know, that leadership role, I guess, was missing and team development role was missing for me. And I didn't really notice it. I didn't really recognize that at the time. And then as life does, serves up a sort of perfect storm for me. So that was a shoulder operation. So I wasn't sleeping you know, after 20 years of throwing balls as hard as I could. Shoulder operation, a newborn with uh, silent reflux, which I'm sure if you could connect with. And then my father-in-law had leukemia. So he was in hospital and my own father had died six months earlier. And I share that story, um, not so much about pity, but what happens with pressure, right? And what happens with pressure, and you know, again, we see this all the time in our day-to-day, is that the cracks show up and typically it reveals what's, uh, what's working and what's not. And so in that situation, 
fortunately, Joan and I sort of reconnected <laughs> around this sort of time. And, you know, we started sharing. We were both living on the Gold Coast at the time. I'd taken a sabbatical and was doing a sort of work placement in at um, Queensland Academy of Sport. And so we started sharing sharing the journey and literally and metaphorically. And, and really what we reconnected. So we'd been mates since um, uni days. Had I'd gone down the athlete path. Joan had gone down the psychology path. And really it was sort of the, you know, our journeys had overlapped a little bit. Then we really came back and and around that time, that was when Jonah sort of introduced me to values and the role they play and how it was holding up when athletes were, you know, in circumstances in which they're really working with stress and pressure all the time um, or, and particularly for those peak moments. And, you know, the sort of realisation from you, mate, I guess that that was the only thing that sort of, truly stacked up in terms of actually being able to deliver on the behaviors that were necessary at those points and so yeah um, i actually recall uh one of those car trips where i was sharing with toby the work that i do and how using values is a cornerstone piece of work to really help people to live the lives they want uh, particularly when you know pressure is present and he said something along the lines of mate this is too important not to share with the world and there was something in that (laughs) that just sort of triggered me and it really spoke to scale and the fact that the impact this work can have is really significant and meaningful. And I think at my phase of my career, I just spent you know twenty odd years, you know, really doing some work I'm proud of. But it was very much at an individual level, helping a, a an elite athlete perform on the biggest stage, helping a CEO you know make some tough decisions. However, I got really excited about the idea of building a business that could take this work and and share it at scale. And I think. Um... The piece that was missing for me, I guess, was was you know this individual understanding their values and connecting them to the organisation team or organisation doesn't doesn't really matter. But just that idea of unlocking performance for people. The bit that I loved about it was such a process of uncovering what was already there and taking taking the meat of what was already there and, and bringing that to life, making it conscious and making, you know, these choices that we make. Yeah. You hear the narrative around sacrifice, particularly in sport, all the time. And, you know, one of one of the key myths that we talk about is this idea of sacrifice versus choice. And really, the sooner that we realize that we have a choice of response that we change our relationship to. And if I think about the mission of the company now, really that is about creating these conditions of high performance. And the way that we do that and what that is in service of is really to help people to change their relationship with stress and pressure. They can be the best version of themselves so they can address, you know, these enormously complex challenges of the time of, you know, our time <laughs> right now, and whether that's environmental, a relationship, and the mental health, you know, or health more broadly, frankly, is a massive complex issue. And how do we help people to and just flip that switch and reconnect to what they have inside them and, and bring that to life. That big gives me goosebumps in the studio. But yeah, that's the bit that really excites me and I think is foundational human work, really. It's just needed, right? Like we, we have the longest lifespan in history. So we claim that we're, you know, we're healthy, but we're probably actually the most unhealthy in history. When you look at the statistics on mental health, obesity, workplace absenteeism, all these different metrics, yet we're living longer. And I don't know if living longer is the best metric necessarily. Never before has there been such a need for people to really connect to doing what matters with the people that matter in a values-based way. In your experience and the coaching work that you've done with executives, athletes, surgeons, actors, et cetera, Jonah, was there's, what we're talking about before, there's the trophies, the bank accounts, all the rest of it. 
but those that you seem to be operating at a high level but also having high fulfillment were those that were clear and living their values. Is that a simplistic statement that's true? Or Yeah, it's certainly, firstly, it's understanding the difference between goal setting or goals in the service of values. And I think the listener to understand the difference is really important. So a lot of people are successful by the way society might value that. They have the metrics, they have the high income, they have the gold medal, they have the, the house, the car, the wife, whatever it is mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. that you want to define it by. But when you actually look within that, you see a very low level of satisfaction and, that, and, and often ill health. When you can help the individual understand who they are, what their values are, what they stand for, and then go about still pursuing goals, you can have it all. It's not a cliche. Mm-hmm. You can have it all. And that's what we love doing. Yeah, yeah. It's not a trade-off. I think people see it as a, a trade-off at times. I, I need to. I can't run a successful business and look after my health and fitness. I can't have time at homes with the kids and have a you know a huge you know company to oversee. And it's it's garbage. You can have it all, but you need to architect your life. You need to be really intentional in what you do mm. and what you don't do. And what helps that is understanding what it's all in the service of. Mm. So to repeat what I said just before, it's about understanding how do I do the things that matter with the people that matter in a values-based way. And if you apply that within the business that you're running or working within or within your family unit or whatever it is, it holds up. Great answer. And I guess taking that back to your circumstances before, Toby, when you said you went through that period of, you know, your, your experience of a fair bit of hardship, both individually what was going on in your world and then some people around you, obviously family members and whatnot, how, how did values or being clear on your values serve you through that episode of stress and then what did you realize post that event? Were, were there any adjustments to life as a result of that? Yeah, no, awesome question. If I reflect on that journey, it was without having uncovered values. I consider myself someone who's taken pride in sort of really running down all sorts of rabbit holes in the self-development space. And in fact, if, if, you, if I look back at that time, I was willing to try anything, which was anything from the rah-rah, pump-up tapes, daily manifesto readings in the mirror to anything I could think of. And basically what I realized, and particularly, so my dad died when he was 66. His, both of his parents, his dad was 98, his mum was 93. So we had this expectation that we had another 30 years. And what that made me really look in the mirror on is maybe my time's, maybe I'm two-thirds of the way through as opposed to maybe my time's running and, and really look into the clock. But what I realized as well when I, re, when I finally connected with Jonah and, and this work around values is I was looking everywhere outside of me for answers. And so I didn't have values through that time. With a really quick tool called a domains profile, and Jonah and I very quickly identified that work was a bit that I was really deeply unsatisfied with. And, I, and it's really interesting as well because at that time I would have said, most of my life is good. Why am I feeling like this? Yeah. Actually, the people that are important to me are still here. But what was... Yeah. So anyway, feeling really lost, to be honest. And what I've realized and the way I've described the work is that it's like rather than anchoring externally and therefore you're dependent on all sorts of different things, to create values is to create this anchor internally and to reconnect with what matters to you and who you want to be in the world and then make choices around that. And you carry that with you all the time. So that's, yeah, that to me has been sort of the reflection of really being at sea and super frustrated about a complete lack of ability to set goals. Like I couldn't set a goal for a guy who had a lifelong infatuation with goals, I couldn't set a goal that I cared about at all. And you know, I knew 
yeah, I had so much to be grateful for. So I, I will interject here just so that the listener gets an appropriate picture. Toby was still waking up most mornings and doing his weights, going for a run, swimming multiple kilometers. He was the Olympian. He was doing guest speaking. He was the CEO of a successful business. He's got a wonderful wife and kids. He was his life, his life had a lot of ticks. So it wasn't like, you know, this picture of this sort of lost soul that wasn't traditionally succeeding. He was succeeding in life by a very traditional metric of it, yet he still felt really disconnected from what was going on. I just wanted to make sure that was really clear. And he was still, <laughs> no, it's true. And, it was, and you're reading, <clears throat> you're listening was, to podcasts, you were... I was literally asking anyone who would listen for, I was trying to find answers and I, and I was running, yeah, all down all sorts of rabbit holes to try to find what was going to... There, there was an inherent lack of fulfillment. Well, yeah, yeah a, a generalized sense of enormous frustration. Not what I thought I wanted. But I'm not feeling how I thought yeah. I would feel. Yeah. 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 And, and one of the easiest things for people to understand the difference between a goal and a value is if you can tick it off and achieve it, it's not a value. Because values endure, right? Right. That you never achieve loving. Mm-hmm. You never achieve curiosity. Yeah. You never, it's not, not something you can say, today I'm you know, done. I finished that. Yeah. Whereas I can go to the Olympics, tick. I can have ki- a kid, tick. I can be a dad tick, but can you be a loving father? When does that finish? It doesn't. Yeah. So if you can tick it off, it's not a value. Yeah, uh, got it. I'm keen to sort of fire a question at you now, Jonah. In our world, we're seeing immense demand for talent at the moment. There's a lot of buoyancy as we sort of perhaps exit COVID. A lot of confidence out there in the market. Almost every sector is hiring and they've got a fierce need to hire people. Candidates increasingly are coming to us and asking us more about the individuals and the culture and the values and what these businesses stand for, more so than just looking at the PD, the remuneration, some of the, I guess, typical things that people might consider, and they really want to understand who's behind the business. So what can you share in terms of when companies and leaders get their values clear and right and the impact that that has on their ability to attract and retain talent? and how that business sort of functions. A big question and a, really, and a great one, right? It's about value proposition, isn't it? And I think the candidates now in the market have learned that it, it matters to understand more about the place you're going to work in because ultimately we're searching for a cultural fit. You want to go to a place where you feel that you belong and that it aligns with who you are. I, I should say that it's important to understand for your listeners that the company values don't need to be your values, but you want a sufficient. If you're working at a place that has a set of values that are completely in conflict with who you are, you're probably not going to enjoy being there or you're going to feel you know, less motivated or question some of the decision-making. So it's really important to understand that. Where we see it going wrong, and that's probably what's motivated a lot of our work, is that organisations typically spend the time to define their values and they'll share that on their website and the job description and they'll onboard employees to that and do generally a pretty good job at it. What they're failing to do is take the time for their, to help their employees understand, firstly, what values are. But let's start there. There's all this talk, all these articles in business reviews and what have you on values, but so few people truly understand what a value is. How, how do you define that? Because it, it seems an obvious point to make. Yeah, of course, everyone should know what values are, but evidently people don't. So yeah. h- how do you define it? Well, it's what, it's what I wake up in the morning and want to bring to the world. Hmm. 
It's the way my best friend would describe me behind my back if they were tr- being truly honest. Mm. It's what I once said about me at my funeral. It's the legacy I want to leave the world. It's what it's the way my children, I want them to speak of, you know, my eulogy, I don't want them to talk about how much money I earned or what I, like, I want, I want, what I want is them to speak about their dad and I want something there about playfulness, curiosity, maybe a bit of pursuit of mastery, you know, stuff that's really important to me. Yeah. So I love it when we take the time to help people understand what values are firstly. Then let's connect and find and define what yours are because then I can ask you to be a custodian of this company's. But to come along and say, here's some words on a wall, here's some decals, here's some, mm. we spent some money on some font and it looks really great. Now go ahead and be a champion of our values. Really all they're doing is just being a custodian of some words on the wall. And we see that all the time. Now the science says that it's better to pursue values at an organizational level or not. Don't do it half-assed. Mm. It's actually worse. Mm. And we see too many companies, unfortunately, well-intentioned, going down that road, but not actually delivering and executing on it. Why don't they? Because they don't take the time to help their staff understand what values are, what their own values are, and then look for the alignment thereof. Honestly, if you can take the time to know who you are and what your values are and how values work in a daily basis to inform your decision-making, then coming to an organization where you see four or five values on a wall and, and some expectations of what that looks like behaviorally, it's so easy just to go, okay, no worries, I get that. And that overlaps heavily with who I am, so what a great place to come to work. It's so much easier to bring organizational values to life by doing the work at an individual level first. So be that in a sporting organization, a corporate organization, you're saying the ones that function best in, in that sort of context are those that help the individual understand what values are and their values. Correct. And then also a similar sort of event with the corporate. Like there's obviously some overlap there, but that's where you're getting that best fit and synergy in terms of how values function in an organization as opposed to just words on the wall. Absolutely. Otherwise, it's you're imposing a value set on somebody. Humans are complex and nuanced and you want a room full of people with differences of values and bringing all that rich tapestry to the workplace. Mm. So to think that we're going to hire 300 people who are all going to have the same values of what we've put on our wall mm. is completely scientifically naive. Mm. What we want is a bunch of people who have their own value set that they use as their compass because people who are value-aligned are more ethical, mm. are better decision makers, especially in complex worlds where there's pressure around. Mm. And I know they're going to be much better able to execute on a corporate set of values because they understand how they use them as a tool for decision making. Yeah. I'm just keen to pick up on how values help you navigate pressure. Mm-hmm. Because I think Toby sort of talked about his own journey with pressure. And a lot of people say pressure just reveals character. And I think we've all got experiences with that. So, if I'm clear with my values, how do they help me navigate pressure? Is it just simply you're not externalizing and you don't need that external validation for your own self-worth and all that sort of stuff? Is it decision-making? What is it that helps you navigate yeah, pressure? Yeah, great question. Firstly, let's take the time to reflect and realize that values are behaviors. They're not just notions and They concepts. should be behaviors. Like, they have to be. Yeah, they are. If they're not a behavior, they're not a value. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> and, and intention is not a value. Yeah. So once we use words because we're language-based animals, but the words are merely representatives of 
actions. If you're listening to this now and you've got a, you've done some work around maybe some values that you think might help define who you are, please make sure you've translated that into definable behaviors. And it's not, it's not love, it's loving. So, so to your question, how does that help people perform mm-hmm. with pressure? Once you know who you are, what you stand for and what that looks like behaviorally. And what I often say is it's not about how hard something is, it's how important something is. If I'm playing basketball in the street and the ball rolls out in front of the, a car that's coming along, I'll let the car hit the basketball. Mm. If my daughter runs onto the street to get that ball, I'm not really even stopping to evaluate how hard or painful that car will be on my ribs. I'm willing to die because of how important my daughter is. Often in life, though, as humans, we focus on how hard something is. We focus on how painful something is. We focus on how scary something is. We focus on how boring something is. We focus on how hard it is to not eat that simple carbohydrate. We focus on, I've I've got to wait until I feel clear, calm, motivated before I go for that run. We, We focus on the emotional component or the difficulty or the challenge. Rather, we need to connect to what is the importance. Humans are capable of so much if you connect to how important it is. Mm. Sorry to jump in, mate, but I think you know you and I were talking about this in the context, the recent context of Tokyo, right? The athletes being presented a boarding pass. Do you yeah, want to just sure. talk through that? Because yeah, I think it's sure. a perfect we're, analogy. We're forty days out from the Olympics, and it's very stereotypical. A lot of clients that I work with are now coming to me, and and you know it's quite predictable. They're they're a bit experiencing some stress. They're reporting some uncertainty. They're all the usual sort of cocktail of pre-Olympic sort of, and the biggest ones are which a lot of listeners don't think of is. The next 40 days, they're often having to train really hard. Mm. So there's a high risk of hamstring tear. There's a high risk of breaking a bone. There's a high risk of missing that Olympic dream because you've got to maintain a training standard right up to that threshold. So most people's brains are going, just go a bit easier. Just hold back a little bit, which means we'll get to the games, we'll get the uniform, Mm. but we'll perform with mediocrity. So that tension between pushing and being values-based is creating some tension. Mm. So they're coming through my door at times going, Jonah, yo, I'm not sleeping well. I'm getting a bit stressed. I'm feeling a little bit, you know, angsty. And, and I go, yeah, great, great. By the way, and I'm a bit playful, as you can tell. It's one of my values, right? <laughs> Playfulness is one of my values. So I say, hey, you know that um, big oversized ticket that says, you know, ticket to Tokyo that they gave you for their social media posts? And they're like, hey, yeah, I've got it on my wall. It's sitting on my desk. I'm actually pretty proud of it. I say, yeah, I wish they gave that to me before they gave it to you. And on the back of it, you know how it's currently blank? I wish I could have written the terms and conditions. And I would have written stress, uncertainty, doubt, worry, slightly impoverished sleep, excitement, extra thinking, nausea, etc. <laughs> and I said, now if I wrote all that on the back of the ticket and still then handed it back to you and said, Do you still want the ticket, mate? You still want to go to Tokyo? Would you take the ticket? And of course, by that stage, they smile and they say, Yes, Joan, I'd take the damn ticket. I say, well, then stop trying to have a ticket that doesn't have terms and conditions. It's the price of entry. Mm. We worry about things we care about. Mm. We worry about things we care about. And so normally, the very presence of tough internal experience is a feedback that you're doing something maybe important. And that's the common conversation I have with people about exploring your values and then making decisions in the service of that is typically you end up doing harder things, pursuing more. So I always say life becomes harder, not easier, but so much more rich and rewarding Mm. because you're pursuing the things that matter. Mm. And in a corporate context there, Sean, too, like recent conversation I had, 
CEO negotiating an eight-figure deal acquisition and they were talking about how horrendous this negotiation had been for them in terms of feeling really neurotic and just couldn't sleep and all this sort of stuff for a couple of months. And I said to this client, well, did you get the outcome? And they said, yeah, I did. And I said, okay, and how'd you go in terms of sticking to the checklist? I've been working with them for a while. How'd you go sticking to your investment checklist? Yeah, I, I stuck to it. And in fact, I got to this point finally where I was willing to walk away from it. But it took me months and it was horrendous. The other party had full control of the negotiation. I couldn't do it. I was like, now that is high performance. And they said, what? And I said, yeah, that is high performance. It's not necessarily when you're in this beautiful flow state and everything's calm, to Jonah's point. This is actually when it really matters is are you able to stick to doing what matters with the people that matter in a values-based way and do you actually adhere to your checklist even though you're feeling awful? Do you still continue with the acquisition and stick to those behaviors even when you are working with this sense of stress and neuroticism and all this sort of stuff? And to me, that was really freeing for them, Mm. Same, same sort of responses. Jonah shared with the athlete, right? Is this relief of, oh, yeah, okay, or reframing of that situation? But yeah. see it all the time in the work context. And, and I think you're right that the answer is the same. The context is different in so much as you're just normalizing or, or reframing uh, the interpretation of those emotions or experiences from one of bad to one of being to be expected when you're mm. about to go to the Olympic Games. It's the price and, of admission. Yeah. It's, the pr- it's the price of admission. Yeah. You want to be a high-performing human being? Yeah. The price of admission is you're going to feel and think some tough stuff generally. Yeah. And we often talk about distinguishing between happiness and enjoyment. Mm-hmm. I think values really help you stay the path and understand that pursuing enjoyment versus happiness mm is really different. Mm. And I guess what I'll play around with a few different metaphors, not many people say they're laughing at the top third of their climb of Everest. Mm. But they say, damn, I enjoyed that challenge. It's enjoyment. Happiness, eating an ice cream on the beach or something. But we we often crave happiness. Mm. But you actually look at the people who thrive in life. You say, hey, tell me about the last month. Tell me what you've been doing the last year since I last saw you. And it's normally filled with a tale of really hard things, Mm. Mm. really intimidating things, really challenging complex problems, and they're pursuing it and solving it. So a life of enjoyment often means fear, doubt, setbacks, failure, insecurity, all those tough sort of experiences. But somewhere on the line, if you can see that's the price of admission for living a rich and fulfilling life, it frees you up to continue that path. Mm. So you tell me that utopia of absolute happiness is somewhat false and that the people in your experience from a psychological point of view that achieve great things and are generally happy, functioning and enjoying life is you have a range of emotions, but in pursuit of whatever is important to you, it's normal to experience those things. It's not devoid of some anxiety, stress, pressure, whatever the case is. It's really interesting because stoicism often comes up in these conversations. And if you read through Seneca's letters at the end, towards the end when he's talking about death, he says the person who fakes tears is out of line, but also the person who withholds tears when they feel like crying, it's not the absence of emotion. It's the acceptance of emotion Mm. and realizing that you still have a choice. Mm. And so I think that, to me, that's a huge misinterpretation of stoicism is this absence of emotion. I'm the same all the time. It's actually, to me, it's all around the 
I still have a choice. And yeah, I, I just love that that one because as I was digging through Seneca, obviously Stoicism is so influential and it's a great philosophy and I love it. And this is one of the reasons why I really connected with Jonah's approach to performance psychology really because it aligns with Eastern mindfulness and these ancient traditions of philosophy and stuff as well and really ties it together. Mm. Um, so it's been fun. I like that notion of choice and I think just building on that uh, comment around the, the Stoics and their view on the world, I think uh, in a different context, Mike Tyson's original boxing coach said, the hero and the coward experience the same thing. It's fear. It, but the hero's response or choice of what to do versus the coward is the thing that differs between the two. And I think maybe when you're younger, maybe I'm wrong, you just think, you were born a hero, you were born a coward, either which way, you don't realize you may have the choice because I think sometimes that interpretation of fear is maybe I'm more cowardly than heroic mm. on that sort of side. So I think it would be great for kids in that to understand that there's a range of emotions and that's normal as opposed to classifying yourself as maybe the coward mm. or the hero. Yeah, I mean, you've touched upon some critical things there and I love that you, you brought parenting into it. Because children misinterpret. So children will see adults acting in a value congruent way and they'll see it as he or she was able to do that because they were confident, because they had unwavering self-belief, because they were calm, because they weren't anxious, because they had high self-esteem. We'll label it in a certain way. And one of the most enduring gifts you can give your children is to normalize the emotions you experience as an adult because they can't read your mind and they misinterpret it. For my athletes, I talk about confidence versus competence. The young athlete sees a Mike Tyson, sees a Tiger Woods, sees a whoever and goes, oh, if only I could be confident like them. And, you know, I have the benefit of working with these high-profile world-famous athletes and I go, if you only knew (laughs) what they go through the night before their competition or the morning of, I'm there with them. And they, their confidence fluctuates and dances around and is fleeting. And some days it's really high and then it's just gone the next morning. But the one thing that's stable and enduring is their competence. They can perform. They can hit a golf ball. They can hit a tennis ball. They can box. And when they learn and, and the work around values helps you anchor that competence. And then when they can learn to no longer fear their fear. So we'll get a bit Dr. Phil here for a moment talk about metacognitions. Yeah. The worry of worry oh, yeah. or the fear of fear. We often do that. We, we think, oh, no, I'm not going to perform well today because I'm feeling nervous. I'm not present well to the board because I've woken up feeling anxious. And it's a story we create in our head. The issue isn't the fear. The issue in that moment is you're freaking out that you're feeling the fear. Mm-hmm. So it's really important to help people free up and normalize and see that as just part of the human condition. And then you let go of that, yeah, that, that metacognitive fear of the fear, and then you're just normal. You're just a bit nervous before a big board meeting or you're just a bit nervous before Wimbledon. Of course, you're going to be nervous. You worry about things you care about. Yeah. And that frees up your prefrontal frontal cortex so you can focus on what matters. Yep. But yeah, debunking the mythology around highly competent people do it because there's an absence of traditionally negative emotion and it's an absolute myth and children love or need that to be debunked. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Nah, fantastic. I think we need more of that education and awareness going out to the schools. A question I want to fire at you, Toby. Obviously, you've done a lot of coaching. You've got a lot of experience and obviously as an athlete and now in the business context, how do you individuals go on this journey of cool, of, of defined my values? I know what I want to stand for. 
to translating to behaviors and habits. And, mm. and your friend next to you has obviously got a lot of experience <laughs> working with helping people change habits, form habits in the service of something. Mm. How do you do that? Because I think it's often easy to go, well, you know, maybe I can land on what my values could or should be, but then how do I get my behaviors and habits to follow? Yeah, and, and look, the way we frame it is always vision or values or it's an interesting exercise unless it gets to behaviors. So yeah. the whole focus really is to get to practice. So what, what does practice look like for you? And that can start, yeah, I'm a big fan of the start ultra small, make it so lower the bar, so low that you cannot fail. Some of those sorts of ideas which come out of you know, all sorts of places, as, as I'm sure you've <laughs> run down those as well. But yeah, look, really... Values takes time to really connect with and then road test in reality out in your world mm. just to see what's landing, what's sticking, what do I remember, what do I not. So you can start with an exercise and the work is never done, which is also somewhat intimidating. Also, there's this soup that I find people need to be willing to sit in and to navigate building their own internal framework of values and a vision that they truly want to connect to. Mm. And so we test that with a really simple sort of, how are you feeling about your values on a scale of one to 10? Oh, about a seven. Okay, cool. We're trying to get you to a nine or 10. Because if you're at a nine or a 10, then you're going to be willing to experience whatever shows up in the service of these things. And and then taking them back out in the world, seeing what really lands, getting other lenses, other people's opinions, best mates, friends, those that are close to you, and just seeing what holds up. And typically, it's as I mentioned earlier, it's nearly always an uncovering process. So going back to those moments where you felt you worked with the stress and the pressure or worked with that anxiety and still moved forward towards the person you want to be and the things you want to do. So it's often revisiting those sorts of areas that I find. I, I think really it's about helps. unpacking the connection to what really sits deep within you without getting, you know, <laughs> too esoteric. It's often early on in exploring values, people come up with a very generic, socially approved list of words. Honest, yeah. integrity, <laughs> hard work, conscientious, kind. <laughs> and yeah, that's interesting. Now let's road test that. Yeah. What would your best mate say? Yeah. What are they going to say at your funeral? What does your wife think of that? What is, and, and what you want to get to is a place where you're like, no, you know what? That's me. Mm. That's mm. truly me. And, and I always say about 80-20 rule. 80% typically is who you are right now most of the time when you're being the best version of yourself. And then 20% should be a bit aspirational. It's still in my heart. That is who I am. Mm -hmm. But I've got to put some conscious effort to really bring that out in me. And when I am, I really feel satisfied. That's the best version of myself. So mm -hmm. whereas some people often go the other way around, it's all these aspirational words. And you're like, mate, that's nothing like you. Come <laughs> on. Like, don't, the don't, gap's too great. Yeah, <laughs> don't, don't, don't sell me that. Yep. Um, so you want to make sure there's some truth serum applied and through some, some distillation of that. But then there's the connection to it, to Toby's point. Do I run on the road? Mm in that oncoming traffic, <laughs> yeah, metaphorically, because it's too important. Yep. And that's when you'll say, okay, I'm going to you know, float the business. I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to you know, have that performance conversation with that staff member that no one else is willing to have to tell them there's spinach in their teeth or whatever it is. Yep. Mm -hmm. You find that those values just become so much, I call it freeing. It mm. becomes your safety blanket. It's, mm. it's Once I know who I am, what I stand for, and the behaviors that bring that to life, then Okay, some anxiety, some discomfort. Well, just, that's just the price of admission, but I know what I'm doing today mm -hmm. uh, and I don't shy away from the, the tough things that I need to do to bring that to life. Mm -hmm. One recent story on that, Sean, has been, so 
again, working with a client, team of 120, really wondering, do I stay or do I leave the business? It, you know, their business. So what am I going to do? What was, just to jump in, what was yeah. causing that conundrum? Well, this is part of it, right? Really hard to put the finger on it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but there was again, something all the trappings of, intrinsically didn't feel Yeah, something was missing yeah. really. Yeah, you know, it was about so we, we spent numbers of conversations going through this and sitting in that soup that I mentioned. Yeah. And and they then we had this conversation just down the road at Tenerife and yeah, you know, why are we doing this work? Why are we? Yeah, you know, and, and we explored it and, and out of that conversation generosity came up a couple of times. And I was like, Oh, you know, you've mentioned that a couple of times in this conversation. What's that about? Is that something? And instantly and it was like that this little switch i shared it with jonah because it was one of those moments in coaching where where you get to unlock something and instantly they're like oh my goodness this has just been missing from the work that we've been doing and i can and immediately they were able to rattle off four or five different things in ways in which they would immediately apply it bring old behaviors back to life it would be a defensive business strategy it would be an offensive growth strategy literally all centered around this single value of generosity. And that's where you, you know, they're the sort of pat on the back moments where you're really stoked to see someone really reconnect to what matters and that often you see that happen. And literally this sitting back, said generosity, had this sort of light bulb moment, leaned forward, hey, Toby, could we go for a walk, please? So we stood up and we walked for the next 90 minutes while all these old behaviours resurfaced and became conscious again, really, of things that they could begin to do again. So it wasn't that he needed to change what he was doing. It was more the implementation of this notion of generosity. Reconnection too, yeah, what they had already done yeah. historically. Yeah, gotcha. And, and I guess just looping back on, on some of the former comments earlier, so there's one thing to have intentions around a value or values that, as Jonas said, are largely true of you, but somewhat aspirational. But that consciousness and that feedback loop daily, whether it's out of 10 or from your friends or wife or business partner about how am I showing up relative to those values is kind of that constant navigation and trimming as to am I going towards these values or am I moving away from? Is, is, is that in a simplistic term? Once I'm I've set intentions, then it's that conscious feedback loop to say, am I there or not? That yeah, becomes... Absolutely. That, that language of towards or away is such a useful way of just anchoring yourself. Like right now in this moment, because values are only momentary. I can act lovingly one moment to my to my friends or my wife or, and then be an absolute prick <laughs> five <laughs> seconds later. So yeah. it's not, yeah, I'll rate myself. Today was, a, you know, it's not, you don't, you don't score it over a day. It's like in this moment to moment, can I just be connected to my values right here, right now? It should be, it has to be, a tool of decision-making. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it's just an intellectual exercise. It's fun to do. Mm-hmm. But it should form a frame for where I make moment-to-moment decisions. What's going to move me towards or away, me being congruent to my values? The, the, the example I use is, I might have even shared it with a previous podcast. I can't remember with you. One of my UFC fighters. Okay, mm. So this is a pretty combative, tough, scary, intimidating sport. And I was working with this fighter working through his values and exploring what that is and what it looks like. And he'd, he wasn't fighting as well. That's why he'd hired me. He was just, he'd lost a couple of, of, of fights. And what I said is, what's it like to fight? And what do you love about it? Because he used to be a, a team sport player and he was quite successful in, in that space. 
And he said, oh, it's like standing naked before the world. And I was like, okay, maybe we could use nakedity as a value. That's a bit weird. <laughs> and I said, man, I can't even imagine what it's like to, you know, close that door on the octagon and hair pulling, biting. There's not many rules. Like it's pretty well as primal as you get. And I said, sounds just so vulnerable to me to be in that space. And he's just like, oh, I love that word, vulnerability. I love that. It's exactly what it is. I said, I would be willing to play around with that and that word and just see what that shows up and looks like. So we explored that. I said, what does vulnerability look like as a fighter? And I spoke to his coach even about it. And he said, well, interestingly enough, what's happening is when my fear story gets really strong, I stand further away from my opponent because I don't want to get knocked out. I don't want to lose. But I stand further back and we run around the octagon until I get worn out. Yep. And then my opponent normally tackles me to the ground and, yep. and beats me. I said, oh, okay, so what would vulnerability look like if you bring it to life? He goes, well, I'd stand closer to my opponent. I'd be willing to actually get hit, hurt, break teeth, you know, all these sort of pretty intense things. But that's where my actual talent shines because I'm a brawler. I need to be in the pocket. We made a commitment to dial up vulnerability and you end up winning more fights and going on to great success. But people are like, oh, wow, those tough fighters, they must just have simple values, kill people. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like the truth be told, I had a bloke staying there and he's connecting to his value of vulnerability. Mm-hmm. But the behavioral output of that was being willing to have his own teeth broke, mm-hmm. broken and punching another guy in the head. So the expression yeah. of values could be quite different depending on <laughs> yeah. you know, what Context. that is for the Context, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, right? So yeah. whereas vulnerability for somebody else might look quite different. So values, you need to actually know what they are, define them in a really explicit behavioral way, mm. and then they become your decision-making tool. And I think uh, what's become apparent to me in that conversation, that answer is there's one thing having that awareness of, of values and all the rest, but I think having a coach or a significant person that understands that framework to unpack and discuss them with you is so important. And maybe on some sort of reasonable frequency because it's easy to sort of get lost in BAU and all the rest. But sometimes it's just a simple conversation that holds that mirror to whatever you need to that you might not ordinarily sort of uncover on your own. Yeah, well, most of us don't get dressed in the dark. Yeah. We, we have a mirror and we switch the light on. <laughs> yeah. And normally for human behavior, sometimes another person needs to be that mirror or that light. Yeah. 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 So I like that. Back to the corporate context. Toby, obviously you're helping these corporates on this journey of discovering their values and then implementing them. When do you know when those companies are just absolutely humming? They've grappled the the values, they're executing on that, they're living them. How how do you sort of know when that's humming? I'd probably say it's the more uncomfortable conversations. So more discomfort. If people are really stepping into values, there's less comfort. There's safety, there's absolute safety, Yeah, but there's less comfort. And a willingness to have a conversation and critiquing work, not the person, critiquing the work, not the person, and a willingness to ask questions, to challenge, you know, how many people do you hear? Oh, we just got to challenge the status quo. How many people actually are challenging the status quo? How many people are asking questions of you know, how they're being onboarded? At what stage of their career or their time in the company are they challenging the status quo? Yeah, when I think of, when I think of values true, really well executed, it often shows up in agenda items. It shows up in systems and processes. It shows up in internal workspaces, intranets, all that sort of stuff. Feedback being given, hey, regenerative was a core value for a client. We see them making decisions, investment decisions, BD decisions around do we accept this person as a partner or not? Or do we accept this company as a partner or not? What do we know about their investors, their backers? Do we still do the work with them? Yes or no? And you see these really hard conversations and often a lot of grey 
you know, it's not about black and white, but it's about willing, being willing to step into the grey of where are we going to draw the line here on, on the less obvious stuff, you know. I think saying no, what they say no to. Mm, totally. Normally, it's pretty hard when you're trying to you're trying to run a business, you're trying to bring cash flow in, you're trying to re- retain or gain clients, mm. and then you're willing to say no, that doesn't align. Mm. So often, I, we look for you know what are you willing to say no to mm. it helps define a mm. clear connection to a value set. Yeah. yeah. Now I like that. Back to you, Toby. Yeah, you talk about I think Jack Walsh. He talks about from G. He talks about a radical candor, and I mm. think that sort of ties back to maybe. Some of the comments you make, what, in your opinion, stands between an organization and individuals exhibiting more candor? Because mm. you hear this a lot. We're clearing our values. I, I want to perform at a high level. I want this business to show up. But then there, there seems to be a roadblock as to why can't I have that conversation with Toby? There's something yeah. holding me back. So what is that? Well, How do you unlock that, that environment where you can be clear on people's intentions, have that candor at the same time? Yeah, two components to that. One is what stops that happening. Mm. And, uh, and to me, that's going all the way back to evolution, right? If we challenge this, if we challenge socially, we ended up outside the cave and we were killed. So that's like mm. an innate part of the human condition. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, yeah. The, the no fear of being abandoned. Or, exactly, yeah, yeah, or yeah. rejected or yeah. ostracized or what have you. That, like, that's pretty innate. Yep. The same way that mm. how do you step into those conversations? Well, you need to be very clear on the importance of the conversation. Again, we can't do anything to change our primal response to that perception of threat. What we can do is be very clear on the importance to model that. We can reconnect to our own values mm. And how I want to be in this situation, how I want to bring this to life at this work, this workplace, and be really clear around it's not just being candid, but how do I do that in a values based way? Because I think the the risk is you go full transparency, and there's no you lose the empathy. Mm. But how do you do what matters with the people that matter in a values based way? And that absolutely applies in this circumstance of, of a challenging conversation. Yeah. No, it pretty well captures it. It's impression management is what you guys are talking about. We we impression manage beautifully. We're very good at reading the landscape and going, I need to be liked, approved of and be safe. Having a tough conversation flies in the face of that at a neural level when we when fear shows up. So back to my earlier metaphor about it's not how hard something is, it's how important something is. If you want a high performance work culture, you have to dial up how important it is that we have those types of conversations that they're critical, that we celebrate them, that we reward them, that we socially reinforce. That's the desired behavior. And once we make it so important and so celebrated, then humans, are we all, we're rats in a cage, we'll respond to that. We're shaped pretty quickly. But if you can also extinguish it very quickly with traditional feedback around that. So you've got to really be intentional with that. Just going beyond that, Jonah, I'm keen to understand from your perspective, any stories we have seen people make shifts when they go from this, I guess, lack of clarity around whatever their mission or values are in life. And then they establish them, they get clear on that. And then the impact that has on their careers, their lives, via the coaching you do. So is there any you know powerful stories you might be able to share in that regard? I'll probably talk more broadly. I, I don't really like talking mm-hmm. about clients specifically in a, in a public domain, but it's really that idea of to, to live a rich and meaningful life and that cliche of can you have it all? And we often think, oh, I'd like that idea, but really deep down I think there's always a trade-off and it's not. So when you can help people connect to their values, they do more, not less. The, the, The person who's 
has a story that they're overworked, they're busy, they're tired, they're stressed, they don't have time for it all, they're working late at night, they're feeling run down, they're feeling like they can't be cloned and be a dad at home as well as be a CEO, as well as be a, a mate, as well as look after their health and fitness and their hobbies. And it's like, there's no way I can spin all those plates. Mm. And what we love doing is helping the person take the time to slow down and actually architect their life mm. and really define the things that matter. And what you find is you can actually have those things all relatively nurtured and the, the cost isn't greater fatigue, it's actually greater thriving, it's greater energy, it's greater satisfaction. Mm. But yeah, the idea that I need to, there's a cost or a sacrifice if I want to look after my health and fitness and be a good CEO, absolute rubbish. It's about leaning into that discomfort and realizing if you take the time to define it, you can actually have, have, that, have it all. And so I, I love the work because at an individual level, a greater mental health greater decision-making, better creativity, better appropriate risk-taking you know, in business decisions and things. Children report the quality of the interactions with their parents, mm. not how long they were home for. Mm. They talk about what was, was dad or mum present. Mm. When, they, when they took me to the park, was, it, was she or he connected and actually having fun with me and, and not just, oh, yeah, dad took me to the park every weekend to play footy, but he was on his iPhone the whole time and in a grumpy mood. Like mm -hmm. people remember the quality and the values in action. And so we love helping people at an individual level transfer that intrapersonally and interpersonally. Mm -hmm. And then that at scale through an organization, you do that with an exec team mm -hmm. and you dial up that exec team's overarching high-performance practices and thriving and that then flow into the workplace and obviously trickle through the whole organization. And that's when you see traditional metrics of engagement and workplace outcomes. And, and you see this nudge in the, in the positive direction. That's really exciting for us. Yeah, and I think you, you talked about that metaphor previously around don't wish for less challenges and issues. Seek to increase your capacity to deal with those things that come at you. But I mean, just on that, how many people do you think are really being the architect of their life versus just... BAU, they're just living month to month, year to year. And so the story goes, like, how many people are actually taking the time to be the architects of their life? Yeah, it's a great question. Statistics, <laughs> right? You'd actually do a little bit of a study of some of those to look at the, the, the landscape, right, of the yeah. world. Well, I mean, the, <laughs> yeah, the statistics are the problems, right? Disengagement's a $16 trillion a year cost. Mental health stats, 50 plus percent divorce rate. Mental health stats on young kids flying through the roof. Personal debt going through the roof in Australia, the costs are probably more apparent than I would say, yeah, the stats around who's running down the rabbit holes. <laughs> but yeah, it's a worrying trend, isn't it? When you look at it, guys, like you say, in one metric, we're living longer than ever. Mm. But all those metrics you just mentioned saying we're declining as a race right now. If you look at those metrics. So what changes, I think all the people here in the room on this podcast are parents. Yeah, we're friends, we're family members, we're in business. Mm. And, and I'm assuming you guys are doing what you're doing because this is your personal why. You want to improve and enhance the lives of people that you work with at scale. Mm. So, you know, I know it's a, a very philosophical question, but what do you guys say to that question and how do we reverse that? Because to me, it's, it's worrying and concerns. It's about defining what matters. I know we've said that a few times, but yeah. we're going to say it again because it's, it, yeah. it's nothing more than that. So we all know that we should eat less food, exercise more, be more patient and tolerant, ask more questions. Like, we know all that. Watch less television, read more. Like we, there's not, I've no. never met a smoker who doesn't know it's bad for them. It's not the absence of knowing what is good or harmful to us. It's that our old brain you know, says, 
eat simple carbohydrates and be lazy. It's evolved yeah, to yeah. make us do that. Yeah, yeah. So that's the inherent trap. So we actually have to do things that are strong enough and powerful enough mm. to move us in an almost contradictory way to that. Mm. But we switch on the television, all we see is people selling us, either selling us insecurity and fear, we've got to buy the big house, the faster car, the what have you, because otherwise we'll miss out. Or here's some simple carbohydrates to eat to, because mm. you might not eat for the next three weeks as we're walking through the savannah. So <laughs> you've got to, like I go, both Tobes and I are into you know, health and fitness, obviously. What makes me get out of bed in the morning is really important things. Like I want to be a healthy dad. I want to model health and fitness to my children. Mm. As well as I want to have more energy and vitality in the work that I do. Mm. Plus, I love the curiosity of just seeing how fast I can run a half marathon. And that's just a little puzzle for me. Yeah. So I use all of those levers because at 5.30 in the middle of winter, when my alarm goes off, my brain wants to hit snooze. <laughs> I don't wake up full of motivation. I don't wake up bouncing out of bed saying, I can't wait to go up there and feel some pain and cold and, and lactic acid and fatigue and soreness. Come on. Yeah. Yet the perception is, oh, because I'm not feeling motivated this morning, mm. I'll hit the snooze button and wait until tomorrow when I wake up feeling more motivated. Mm. And then I've gone on a two-year journey of not exercising. Mm. So you've got to connect to what matters. Mm and do things in the service of that. And that's what leads to lasting behavior change. Any sort of comments off the back of that, Tubbs? Look, part of that, the challenge of the business in, is that how, how do we help people take an inner journey and really unlock their own performance? And how do we do that at scale is a, is a massive challenge for us, but a super exciting one at the same time. It, it's also very true that we all know that there is no shortage of information, almost never. <laughs> In fact, do I spend any time identifying behaviors with the client? They already know what they need to be doing. So it doesn't and in fact, often, often they're far better at what they do than I am. I'm not, there to, I'm not there to help them in what they do. The thing is to help them reconnect to what, yeah, doing what matters with the people that matter in a values-based way. And so how can I help them dial up the importance and see that? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's probably a really cool way to maybe draw to a close because I think the awesome thing about that answer to me is it's already within us all to go in the direction that we can and maybe want to go and maybe it's through the work that you guys do uh, in part to, to shine a light or, or identify what you should and should not be doing in the service of whatever values or however you want to turn up and if not at an individual level, at a corporate level, you guys are making that possible because Back to Jonah's point, whilst we all know that things are either in this, uh, moving us towards or away from things, in reality, shifting that is hard. And, and I think those trends tell us that. Mm. So I think I'd probably just use this opportunity to say, I think the work you guys are doing is, is awesome. I know you're not here about self-promotion today, but I think it's a hugely powerful thing. And I think you can see in people when they're living their values and they're congruent with who they want to be, just the way that they appear and act and operate. And that permutates through so many different areas, whether it's how pleasant they are ordering their coffee or how they show up for their kids or whatever the case is, it radiates. So I think the work that you guys are doing is, is awesome. And personally, I've been through some of the tools and, and that, that it's, uh, you guys offer, which is really cool. So I was just genuinely inquisitive and I could be here for much longer. I'm <laughs> conscious of the clock here today, guys. So I guess I'll just use this opportunity to say thanks, guys. Keep up your magic. And I guess last thing is how do people find out more about you guys? Yeah, cool. Just go to the website, which is North Framework. Dot com. There's two things there that might be of interest. One is the domains profile that people can use. It's a free tool used to assess your sense of thriving, essentially, and 
you know, that'll walk you through that process and deliver a report to you. And the other one is at an org level, if people are interested, there's a tool there called the High Performance Index. And so that is a way to assess the performance conditions of the organization. And so if you're interested in doing that too, they're probably the two logical starting places. Cool. Appreciate it, guys. Thanks again for taking the time and sharing some of your wisdom on, on values. Thanks Sean. for having us. Cheers. Thank you for listening to StellarCast. This show aligns with why Robbie McIlwraith and Sean McCambridge co-founded the company. Their mission was to help and nurture others to reach and exceed their potential. For trusted recruitment and career advice, contact Stella today.